it. Welcome to Strata Stories. My name is Thomas Schreiber. I'm the Director of Marketing here at Strata. Strata is a single EMR platform and revenue cycle management service for physical, occupational, and speech therapy practices that helps you achieve a 99.99% reimbursement rate. On today's episode, Paul Singh, the CEO of Strata, talks with Ashley Mack. Ashley is a PT, former clinic owner, and the owner of Dragon Digital Health. Dragon Digital Health is a company that builds automations for healthcare companies to reduce costs, improve outcomes, and enhance the patient slash client experience. Paul and Ashley talk through how to control costs in your clinic, why there's a huge opportunity at the intersection between cash and insurance-based practices, how to find and serve your niche, and the importance of clarity in marketing. If you'd like to learn more about Strata and see how our EMR and RCM works, head over to stratapt.com to book a demo. Now, without further delay, here's today's episode. Why is it that clinics are running on these thin margins more often than they should be right now? Yeah, this fantastic question. I'm going to go all the way back to why I'm just going to go into just like the medical education itself. And I think that, so I've been practicing since 2012. And so I remember when I was getting myself ready for school, the healthcare profession is held at such a prestige level. And as it should, it plays a very important role in our society, helps people stay healthy, it saves lives. But I think it also creates, in a way, a little bit of a, for lack of a better word, a God complex, where we come out and we're thinking, okay, we are the solution to every single thing. We are the most special human beings. And I think what ends up happening is because you have that thought process, it gets very challenging to look within and say, and realize that you, the person, might actually be the reason why the profit margins are so low. And I'm going to just premise with that. I think it is really hard to look within. And the way that our education system is, physical therapists, when you graduate, you're going to be the movement and rehab experts already being given the expert title automatically creates this sense of, yeah, this complex. And you bring up this really interesting fact about just the content that is out there and why it's so important. Like for me, it's important to share all this information. I was interviewing a spinal surgeon and on my podcast, and it was really interesting because he said, Ashley, I want to learn what you do in the practice, because it seems like every specific concentration is kind of like a black box. And to be 100% honest, I didn't realize what a black box was until AI started to become a little bit more popular, right? Because of the fact they were like, oh, what's this black box? And I literally just thought the black box was just the recording devices and airplanes. But black box as in, like, what is the magic? What happens in that interaction, in that specific thought process as well? So from there, because people have this black box, people we'll say like physical therapist profession, we're like, we are these experts. It's very, very hard to actually go within and say, okay, I might be the problem. And so if we would look at the average outpatient orthopedic clinic, if you've never been to a physical therapy clinic, I want you to imagine like you walk into maybe like a 2,000 to 5,000 square foot facility with a whole bunch of machines, something's akin to like a 24-hour fitness or a New York sports club. It's like a fitness facility. But in that fitness facility, not only is there equipment, exercise equipment, where you're looking at treatment tables. And what's really interesting is that those treatment tables are like five to $10,000 a piece. And what's interesting is the fact that you can get the same table on Amazon for like 100 to 200 bucks. And so already it's 
you're seeing this equipment and I'm already looking at it. It's like, all right, well, you can theoretically start a physical therapy clinic for very, very low cost. Maybe the most expensive thing will probably be your rent. But even if your rent, I think it's important that, I mean, the numbers have to work, right? To be able to say, all right, well, if I'm going to have this specific fixed expense, and I see this actually with like other businesses as well. It's like, oh, the issues with the money coming in and money coming in. But people can get by totally fine at like 10 grand a month if they're expensive, like a thousand bucks a month. It's 9,000 net. And so that's where I think it becomes a challenge where it's like we're so fascinated by the shiny, bright objects that don't necessarily bring in more revenue. Something that has always been done. It's always been this $10,000 unit. It's always been this $5,000 table. It's always been this $15,000 piece of exercise equipment that isn't necessarily going to, one, serve the patients, but also, two, not going to bring in more revenue. And especially, so I think that's it's a multitude of aspects. It's like the complex that we get when we graduate from school and the bright, shiny objects and the how difficult it is to actually look within and say, I got to cut some expenses or actually leverage the expenses that I have right now. That's a really interesting perspective and and frankly, one that I haven't heard before, but I think it makes sense. You know, there's a, I suppose there's like a bad joke in the venture capital community where where we might say uh, projections are hopeful and expenses are reality. <laughs> and so, you know, in this case, it's like if you're getting yourself in debt, even if it's not an actual loan, but you've actually invested the cash to buy these things, you're digging out of the hole you're starting in the hole and you got to dig out of that. I mean, in your experience though, like, I don't want to be cynical here, but why do people do that? The healthcare profession, I mean, you got to be rational and intelligent and stuff to go through the training, to stick with it and, and to pass. But it seems like wild that people kind of then fall for that trap where it's like, I need to spend 10 grand on a treatment bed. For me as a patient, I, I've never actually thought about how much the bed costs. <laughs> you know, I just... Just like, can I get fixed? So anyway, why why do you think? I mean, just if you had to guess, I mean, why do people do that? Is it certainly nobody's like forcing them to? So it's either like they think that's how you're supposed to start a business, or I don't know, what is it? <laughs> like, I think it's two big principles. Number one, what's really interesting is that as healthcare professionals, people will naturally come to us because we're already filling a gap in regards to what people need, and when you are part of a clinic, when you're an employee and you're, and you're working for them, you're just existing and you're getting patients, right? So the marketing and the growth isn't necessarily yours. So that's number one is the fact that it's the power dynamic. And so we'll say even five or six years ago, we were not in as much of a consumer medicine type of environment that we are today, because there's a lot of different options that people have now where you can do the virtual, you can do in person. So I think the power dynamic, number one, was the big thing, was the fact that it's like, we're just so used to people coming to us. That's number one in regards to, that's why we don't necessarily think that a $10,000 treatment table is like a big deal. But then the second part of that is oftentimes a lot of new clinicians or new business owners will have taken their previous experience at their employer and they looked at it and said, all right, well, this was a piece of crap piece of equipment. I'm going to go ahead and invest a little bit more. Let me make it the quote unquote boutique experience. And so making it a boutique experience will then also continue to drive the cost up too. That kind of makes sense. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of makes sense. This is super interesting. So you, and I, I don't mean to like make this sound too trivial, but like you've had a practice before. 
you clearly understand the media side of things. I guess maybe that one of the first questions I'd ask is like, to the extent that you're willing to share, like, how do you go from day to day? I'm running my practice. I'm doing all the things to, you know, it's always easy to look at it from the outside. Like, oh my gosh, you figured it out. Right. But I'm curious, like, how do you think about that? When, you know, how did you make that transition from running a practice to doing what seems like having your freedom right now? <laughs> so it, it's been definitely quite the journey. So we'll, we'll say it's a 12 year journey. And so the best way I'm saying how I made that transition would be best described going through like in a very quick chronological order of what happened. So I graduated 2012, started working for a clinic from 2013 to maybe it was actually January 1st, 2014. I was out on my own. So a full year of practice, we'll say 18 months of practice. And at that time, I actually just realized that I operated a lot better at the tune of my own drum. It's not to say that I disliked my previous employer. I just had my own rhythm of doing things. And it's just been a way of behavior and operation that I've always had my entire life. I would really go in the direction of just what felt right. And so going on my own is what felt right. And so when I opened up my own practice and opened up one clinic, I was actually really lucky. I contracted and I was working at a CrossFit gym. And I was working at the CrossFit gym in exchange for the rent that I was paying for the space. So I would coach, we'll say like 20 hours a week, which 20 hours a week at the time with a full salary, that's like part-time. It's pretty nice, right? So then yeah. I said, here's all this free time that I have that I can use to grow my practice. And then from there, literally in the span from 2014 to 2017, I had my own private practice in this own CrossFit gym. And so I was really lucky because I was able to grow my business technically rent-free. But then there was a point in time, I hit the inflection point in 2017 where I actually needed to grow and open up my own spot. And so in 2017, open up a physical therapy clinic and fitness facility altogether. I didn't go through it by myself. I actually had a couple partners. And just because I knew all about treatment, I didn't know about growing. I literally just placed myself in a fitness studio and said, I can fix you if you're broken. That's literally what my marketing was. And I would use my public speaking skills, running CrossFit classes to show my expertise, my ability to connect with people. So that was a really, really cool environment. And so from 2017 to 2019, when we lived in New Jersey, that's all I did. And pretty much to the point where, one, during the first six months, I learned actually all about business. So I would say I wasn't a true business owner until 2017, because that's when I started to hire a mentor, learn all about the numbers. I knew about customer service. I kind of knew about marketing, but from a back-end operations, how to actually minimize the minutia whether it be to hire an admin or actually improve my systems, turning to softwares, kind of like the softwares that you guys are building. And so from there, we moved out here to California in 2019. And that's actually when I was transitioning out of my business. And shortly after was the COVID pandemic. And pretty much at the time, literally two weeks into the start of the pandemic, the landlord of the facility said, Ashley, you're pretty much out of business. You can just move out. I said, and at the time I was thinking, oh, you know, we're going to, we're going to put our arms up and we're going to fight. But I said, wait, this is an easy out for me. I can just sell all the equipment and I sold all the equipment and I can just transition online like everyone else. And so the transition wasn't necessarily hard. It was really just a matter of, okay, let me make a big pivot. So we closed the space and then we got here living in California, California. And then from there, I reevaluated and I said, okay, what do I want out of life? What do I want out of this career? Really, it's like what I want in general. And when people ask about me, like what motivates me? One, I want to be able to spend as much time with my wife as possible and eating good food. 
And then number three is being able to do jujitsu whenever I want. So like those are the three points. So from there, I looked at, all right, well, should I open up another facility? Maybe, maybe not. I don't want to have to take another $5,000, $10,000 expense that if I don't have to. And then what was great is the fact that learning about being able to go to people's homes, working with people virtually, you have the opportunity to meet people where they're at. And so it was always focusing on what really drives me and then how do I make it work? How do I make it work? And then how can I make it fit however I want it? Is I, someone's talking about it's like, you know, there's so many ways to make money, but it's really like what your values are is actually how what drives you on how to make that money. Because I, I want to make money, but I could sell drugs, right? But those drugs, like selling drugs is not part of my values, right? So I realized that patient care is something I really enjoy. So I said, how can I make patient care fit into this? You can take a pass on this question if you want, but I have to ask, and this is going to sound bad, but it, I genuinely mean it as a compliment. Very, very few people in this industry think about marketing, I think, the way that you you do, in the sense that I think a lot of people, like I think marketing kind of gets a bad rap. You know, you got a lot of like consultants that burned you. You got, you know, like it just gets a bad rap. But on the flip side of it, if you kind of ignore all that noise for just a minute, ultimately marketing is how you get into the minds of a possible customer in the future. And it's super important. Anyway, I guess the hypothetical question I'd love to ask you is, is if you were to start a practice today, 2024, knowing what you know now about content and all that. I mean, clearly you have an eye for like making sure expenses are under control. So I know that's like assumed to be part of the answer. You would control your expenses. But knowing what you know today about marketing, media, all that, what would your next practice look like? Like what would that just high level shoot from the hip? I'm curious how you would think about that. You know what? I'm really glad you asked. I've never thought about this question before. However, since you brought it up, I think the most important thing is uh, the from a marketing standpoint, everything that I know would actually, I would go to my local coffee shop and just talk to people or like in a, a non-creepy way, listen on to people's conversations. And I hear it all the time. I, <laughs> coffee shop, no, I think I'm not coffee shop. I would join my local like 24-hour gym. That would be the thing. Yep. Get there, work out, meet the people, hear, oh, your back is killing you. Like, oh, let's just go ahead and start and using that, not necessarily to try to sell a client, but really more so to start a conversation. Because that's what marketing is all about, right? Marketing is actually right. being able to conversation. Right. Sales is actually what's going to be initiating that actual transaction. So I think placing yourself, placing myself in the literal physical or digital location of where my client avatar would be is where I would spend. It's so interesting because I would bet that probably comes naturally to you because of your experiences. But at least so many practice owners I meet, they don't say it this way, but you can tell through their words and actions and you know whatever that there's this implied belief that if they just set it all up, if they just put up the shingle, if only one referring physician knew about them or if they sponsored one little league, everything's just going to happen. And, you know, you've got this like sort of novel approach where you would say, you know, the summary of what you just said is you'd kind of spend time outside the clinic and, and starting those conversations. I was talking to one of, we interviewed somebody else earlier this week, and he said he actually carves out a couple hours every Wednesday morning just to do things like this, you know, and these are like things that I imagine you and him and others like you, which is very rare, actually think about because <laughs> like setting up is not enough, you know? So that's, that's interesting. Okay, so then the next question I'd ask you is like, let's say a practice owner is listening right now and let's say that they are 
willing to do that sort of uncomfortable introspection where they say, you know, ooh, Dr. Ashley's right. I, I definitely bought too many $10,000 tables. So I got to like fix this. <laughs> like, I'm not asking you to give me personal finance advice, but if you've already got a practice and you're feeling the feels now, because you just heard this from you, like, what would you tell that practice owner in terms of getting it together? I mean, would you tell them literally sell the table now and, and swap it? But what advice would you give to somebody that has already made the mistake and now needs to make it right? I think number one, understand your numbers figure out how much money you need to make. And if you are not reaching your target because of the fact that you have to pay all these bills, sell that table. Because more often than not, if you have three tables in your clinic, those three tables are not being used every single hour of the day, sell it. I think that's a big thing. Anything that is not adding value in regards to making your life easier or not adding actual physical revenue, sell it. There's always going to be someone who's going to be interested in, in, in buying it. And so... There's so many different marketplaces you can go ahead and sell it. At least you'll be able to know that you have some extra cash to give you a little bit of time. And then now you have that extra cash to be able to dedicate towards something else. And I think that'll be from a finance standpoint. If you don't mind my asking, how did you learn about the finance side? Did you take classes? How did you figure this out? There were a couple of people that helped me just understand from a finance side, from a physical therapy standpoint. Aaron LeBauer and Jared Carter, those were like the two pioneers in cash-based physical therapy back in like the early 2010s. And then when I opened up my gym, my partners and I actually hired a, a fitness mentorship company. Now they're a big business mentorship company called Two Brain Business and the, the Chris Cooper and the team over there. And they taught me about the finances, about the operations. And I think one of the most interesting things was the fact that Physical therapy, it's a service-based business and service-based businesses, even though we have a professional license that we have to uphold, the operations are very, very similar in stuff like fitness businesses or anything that you're doing with human beings. And so that was really helpful. And I learned a lot from them and I was actually applying there for a couple of years. That's really neat. And I, I appreciate you sharing too, because I think financial literacy or lack of financial literacy is not just limited to practice owners. I think across a lot of different industries and and careers and stuff like that, people just don't know. Obviously, as a cash pay practice, your cash flows probably are just like any other direct-to-consumer company in the sense that you swipe their card on Stripe or Square and, you know, hits your bank account in two days. And that's good. That's good. But for any of the practices that do accept insurance, that's where things get really crazy and and frankly dangerous because the timing of cash flows can get delayed. You look profitable. Oh, I saw, I did 30 visits. I'm making this up. I did 30 visits this week. I'm going to be rolling in the dough if you push the claims through and if it doesn't get denied. And so one of the ideas I've been sort of kicking around, half joking, half seriously, has been this idea of like, what would it look like? whether it was like a virtual accelerator or just free templates. I don't know what it looks like, but, and I'll just use the Valley, Silicon Valley, since it's kind of right around the corner from you. And and, and I used to live out there as well, but it's like entrepreneurship is never easy, but it's certainly getting easier every single year that passes because more and more people in e-commerce or software as a service, they blog about it. They give away their financial templates. They open source the term sheets, but healthcare on the whole, in terms of practice ownership, hasn't quite gotten there yet. Like I actually, from a content standpoint, that's something that I've been sort of kicking around with Thomas and a couple other folks is, is like, 
how do we create like a, I don't know, a pro forma that you could just clone for free off of Google spreadsheets and, and go mess with it? Because I, I anyway, I just, I think a lot of people kind of get into this because it was, okay, so this is probably a bad joke, but I was talking to a, um, a friend who is married to a PT and I don't want to name any names and she'll probably get in trouble, but just out of the blue, she reached out. She's like, yeah, so um, my husband, he's ready to start a practice. Can we talk to you about it? And I was like, I don't think you should. <laughs> and she replied back. She's like, what do you mean I shouldn't? Look, I have a feeling that your text out of the blue is because your husband had a bad day at work. Is that right? Am I, am I on the right track? She's like, yeah, he had a bad review and now he's going to start his own practice. I'm like, that is the worst reason to start a practice. <laughs> like, you probably make more money like getting your real estate license or something like that. Now I'm going to have realtors coming after me. So there we go. But anyway, I think when you think about like practice owners today, I don't want to like steal your thunder here. So I'm going to just kind of set this up and see where you go with it. A lot of what you're doing now, I think, is about helping practices be more efficient with their costs, build automations, reduce admin costs. What you're really getting at is, I think, coming back to the beginning of our episode here, it's like ways to reduce the expenses or the leakage of profits from a practice. But do you want to talk more about that real quick? So like, what are you doing now? What are you building now to kind of help this? Cause I, like, because I, I, again, I'm not trying to steal your thunder. I want to let you kind of share your what you're working on. Yeah, this is great. I'll break this down into two parts. I think number one, I think it is important for the listeners and practice owners to understand that right now, the current stage, here we are in 2024, for some reason, well, we'll say there's a difference between cash PT and insurance-based PT. And the same thing is like difference between cash pay medicine and then insurance-based medicine. And what ends up happening is that We'll say back in when I first started going cash in 2014, I was probably like one in 50 PTs who were actually only taking cash. And I remember the general thought process was like, I am only doing this because I want to provide the care that I want to provide. There's really that. And I found it to be interesting because as I've observed over the years, it went from, I charge this so I can provide you the care that you want to your insurance-based physical therapist doesn't care about you. And that's entirely not true. Every person who's in the physical therapy profession wants to help people. And I do believe in a world where both insurance-based physical therapy or insurance-based healthcare can also coexist with cash-based healthcare. And that's one of the beauty, beautiful things about us being in America. We have a combination of four different payment systems in this country compared to every other country that only has one. And so because of that, there is a huge opportunity for both insurance-based practices and I think like the best way for them is to reduce their expenses and really leverage software like that you guys have because you're making the approval process a lot easier. You're also having like a higher reimbursement rate and also being able to know like how much you're getting paid. So I really appreciate what you do. I think that that's important. And then also on the cash pay standpoint, it is important to know that there are people who are going to be paying cash, but it's not an either or it's they coexist together. So I think that's important in regards to like what I'm doing now, right? So Dragon Digital Health, what I do is actually I help businesses actually really leverage the softwares that they have already have. So what I mean to say by that is living out here in the Bay Area, just here in startup after startup, I won a couple of hackathons here and there, jumped into a couple of different business competitions. And looking at just all the different startup companies that are out there, and I'm thinking, does it make sense to even just add an entirely new software? Does it make sense to take a software and make it a competitor of an already huge entity, right? In my head, it's not something I want to do. So 
I looked at it and looked within and said, okay, what happened to be good at? It's like, I happened to be do a pretty good job at improving operations. And so I looked within, instead of saying, how can I build an entirely new app or software? I can actually just show practice owners or people, all right, well, you already have these three softwares. How can we actually add an extra 10 to 15% usage of this? I have a fair assumption that clinicians are, we're probably only using 10% of the available potential of the softwares that we're using. And the reason being is that they just, we just don't have the time to explore. But that's why I'm here. I've been able to really just explore and see, all right, well, we can create a lot of automations. We can streamline a lot of things. We can reduce admin time, not necessarily to like fire your admin, but actually use that admin to actually help go market or like make your life easier so you can go out and market. So I think it is important to be able to say, instead of having to get an additional new software, you'll say, what kind of softwares do you have right now? How can we make it even more valuable to you? And kudos to you guys, because you have your EMR and your billing, which I mean, I think that's genius. So it's awesome. I, yeah, I appreciate it. I, I, you mentioned something earlier about there being four ways to pay. Can you talk about that real quick? Because I think that's interesting. I haven't heard it explained that way. Oh, it's wild. So there's this book, I think it's called The Price We Pay. And it's by like T.R. Richardson. I'll send you the link. It was fantastic. So I got into just trying to get an understanding of the healthcare industry probably at around 2022. It was the second time I got COVID. I couldn't see patients. I was like, let me just read something. And I went down this rabbit hole and I read a couple books. So number one, I read one book called American Sickness. There was another book called This Bitter Pill. And then the other one was called like The Price We Pay. So I had these three books. One of them was actually talking about like the history of the Affordable Care Act. I was like, I don't need a history lesson. I just don't understand what's going on. But in that book, it actually helped me understand that there's a difference. There's two big things that the US is trying to, or the world is trying to fight for when it comes to paying for healthcare. Number one is going to be coverage, which is insurance, payers, whoever's paying. And then there's actually the cost of healthcare. And so you have these two pieces. And what's really interesting is that I think in today's world, especially in the US, insurance coverage is it's kind of like just having a sticker that says I voted. Like it's it's just a sticker that says that you're covered, but it doesn't really mean much in the grand scheme of things because people have insurance but are still paying an arm and a leg to get the healthcare that they need. Like I know for me, we have a high deductible health plan, which means that even if we were to go in network, we still have to pay out of pocket like a lot before the insurance starts to kick in. And we're paying a good amount for health insurance. So like that's pretty gnarly, right? So that's this cover. The second part is actually the cost in regards to like how much does it actually take to actually render the services? And that's what we're looking at. Equipment, people, time, like literally what do we have to put in or what do we have to pay for that? And it's interesting because you see a lot of legislation focused on the coverage aspect and they're talking about cost, but this actually brings us into the actual like four types for four ways that four systems that are at work when it comes to healthcare. So forgive me if I say this wrong, we can get double check this on the, but number one is, so we break the systems down into four groups and we have the payer and then we have the provider. So payers, providers. And so the payers, you're either a private payer as in like private health insurance, a government payer or self-pay. So you have like those three categories in the payer system. And then we have the providers aspect. And so providers, we're looking at either independent providers, government-owned providers, or independent providers where their price is actually dictated by the government. So what that means is 
So when I say there's four systems at work, number one, you have, let's just say like the most common, which is going to be like UK and Canada. You have a government payer, which is the NHS. And then you have the, actually in, um, in the UK, you'll have providers who are actually contracted or hired out by the NHS. They work directly for the NHS. So that's going to be kind of like the socialized medicine standpoint. That's like the UK. There is the German system. It's called the Bismarck model. And the Bismarck model is actually private insurance, but actually private insurance, which everyone has to opt into. And then you have the providers who are private and the insurance actually pays those providers. But then those providers can kind of dictate their prices. And then you also have like private providers. And then you have the providers who are, they're independent, but their pricing is actually dictated by the government. So you end up having like these four different models and you see it all throughout the world. And what's really, really cool about the US is the fact that you have all those four at work. You have the Medicare system where you have providers who actually get paid a specific amount from the government. So the government actually says this is the price, but the government is also the one who pays for it. That's system number one. System number two, you have your private pay model, which I just pay like the person, the cash rate. You also have, say, the VA. The VA is actually really cool because the VA, providers work for the VA. The VA is actually owned by the government and funded by the government as well. And then you have, um, what's the third one? Oh, and then you have the private insurance. Yeah, private insurance and then the private provider yeah. as well. Got it. You'll have to send us those books so we can maybe we put them in the uh, show notes there. That's pretty cool. Okay, so I'm going to say this assertively, but it's really meant as a discussion. So I feel like a lot of the narrative around cash pay versus accepting insurance is really like borderline adversarial, where you have one side that says it's cash pay or nothing. And then all the way on the other extreme, it's like, ah, cash pay, like, ah, I'll just do the insurance side of things. And I'll just kind of like, I don't know, look the other way on deductibles and, and collecting and all that. Like, I know I'm Nobody actually admits to that publicly, but when you look at like their receivables, sometimes you're like, whoa, why are you not collecting anything? <laughs> anyway, and maybe this is just the optimist in me, but it feels to me like there is an opportunity at the intersection of both of those that you could potentially use some of the tactics and techniques that cash pay practices use on the insurance side of things to grow revenues, but perhaps vice versa. I'm curious how you think about that. You're nodding already, so I, I maybe you've got some thoughts on this. I think... What do you say to that? Because I feel like there's so much black and white sort of, it's like sports. It's like you're either on this team or this team. And if regardless of which team you're on, you hate the other one. But it probably shouldn't be that way. How do you think about that? Well, I think, I mean, I love sports analogies. They're great. I think one of the challenges with sports, and I was listening to a podcast. So as I said, I was big jujitsu hobbyist. I'll call myself a hobbyist. I'm definitely, I don't know that much. But anyway, a large part of it is uh, there was this fighter who talked about, he was like, in order for me to win, someone has to lose. And that like blew me away. That's competition though. That's competition because really the overall beauty of jujitsu is that you learn. You either win or you learn and you get the opportunity to grow and develop. And I think that's really special. But like the Super Bowl is coming up, right? And so it's going to be Kansas City Chiefs versus the San Francisco 49ers. If the 49ers win, Kansas City loses, right? And the reality, especially when it comes to healthcare, healthcare in itself, we're trying to serve the greater good. We're trying to take care of other people. And there is a huge opportunity for both people to actually learn and build off of each other. A hundred, you're absolutely right. It doesn't have to be an adversarial standpoint. I think, unfortunately, the way that our attention spans are, 
these organizations have to have an adversarial standpoint so they can stand out. I think that's the big thing. And you notice it actually in all marketing and all social media is the fact that you have to say something completely outrageous in order for people <laughs> to right? And I think that is a very big, important concept is I think ultimately it's a marketing tactic. That's the big thing. It's like once you plant your flag, people are going to be throwing stones at you. But if people are throwing stones at you, people are looking at you, which no marketing is bad marketing, right? Type of deal. It's right. Like, Right. You can disparage someone, but then when you disparage someone, you're just driving your audience to look at that person. So it ends up just yeah counterintuitive. I'm going to take back my comment that that was going to be the last one because this opens up uh, one more question. And then I promise I'll make this the last one. So just to kind of piggyback off of your point, this brings up the topic of niching, 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 however people say it, right? I think the implied business thinking for a lot of practice owners incorrectly, in my opinion, is that you shouldn't niche down. Like if we just did a random Google search for PT near me, we'd probably get names. There's a million PT practices around your house and my house. And they're probably not, they don't look any different from each other. It's like, so Dr. Lisa has this many years, da, 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 da. You've gone down this path of focusing on sciatica. And like, we've seen other practices go deep on knee replacement, shoulders, uh, whatever. And what's interesting is, is like the ones that niche down seem to crush it because it's just easy. It's way easier to just go deep on a vertical than the others. Anyway, I'm curious, like whatever you want to share around your, you know, niching, I guess, how'd you end up in sciatica? And what do you think about practices that don't seem to niche at all or even talk about their their niche, like they don't differentiate. I'm just, you're already nodding. So I'll kind of let you go with it. I think a large part. So the reason why I chose sciatica and back pain is it was something I happened to be really good at. It was something that actually kind of, it was what I was good at. And also something that was born out of frustration because I'll premise with the fact that by the time people are actually paying cash to see me, they've gone through their insurance. They've gone through multiple different people who tried to fix their sciatica pain in the first place. And unfortunately, with all the money and the time that they spent, they're still not better. And I'm just going to premise with, I don't think I'm anyone special. But one of the things I noticed was the fact that I would be able to get some of these folks better in one or two visits, not because I'm an extremely brilliant human being, but I was able to just take the time and figure out what I needed to do to get this person fixed. So that was one. I was It, it was just being able to say, I happen to be really good at this. And it seems as if there's a lot of people who really need help. And so instead of having, and I also wanted to focus on being better than what people see on just like Dr. Google. You would often just type in sciatica and you're like having 13 different, just like 13 million articles on sciatica right now. Probably a couple million of those is actually like giving you the same like four stretches, but the four stretches are also in, they conflict each other. And so I wanted to be able to create clarity. And I think that's one of, another big thing that I learned from a marketing standpoint is being clear and giving people an actionable step. So I think that that was number one. I think when it comes to niching down, I just happened to niche down from a specific procedure, condition. But I think also you don't necessarily have to overlook the power of niching down to a specific person as well. So if I were to re- have redone this, I would have been like, I would have focused on, say, CrossFitters who are dealing with sciatica pain. Like that would make it even more of a direct thing. But I think that there's a lot of value to actually identify and like the actual person that you're speaking with. And I think that there's a lot of really great social media accounts who actually have like a really large listener or followership because of the fact that they know exactly who they're talking to. So they're either like working with gymnastics or 
just being very specific. And I think what it ends up happening is that it makes it a lot easier from a content perspective, but also it's like the general term in marketing is if you're talking to everyone, you're talking to nobody. And I think that's really important. And it made it really easy to create content. I remember I said, okay, I guess I'm going to go the sciatica route. Am I going to be able to create this much content? And I'm pretty amazed because here I am about to be starting my third year of podcasting. It's the number one podcast for sciatica. And there's over 120 episodes. And these episodes range between 20 minutes to an hour. So we're looking at over maybe about 100 hours worth of talking about sciatica. And they're all different because you get to interview and like figure out that there's so much And the more time I spend in this space, the more that I realize, wow, there's still so much that one I can learn and that people can learn as well. Thanks for listening to another episode of Strata Stories. Strata is a single EMR platform and revenue cycle management service for physical, occupational, and speech therapy practices that helps you achieve a 99.99% reimbursement rate. If you'd like to learn more about Strata and see how our EMR and RCM works, head over to stratapt.com to book a demo.